welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined via Skype for this bonus episode with Dr. Hussein Naji. We're talking about the risk of bias in cancer clinical trials that lead to EMA drug approvals, and you won't want to miss this discussion of a BMJ paper that's out this week. So, stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session HQ for this bonus episode with Dr. Hussein Naji, who is an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. And he is joining us on the podcast today to talk about his paper that was out yesterday in the British Medical Journal entitled Design Characteristics, Risk of Bias, and Reporting of Randomized Controlled Trials Supporting Approvals of Cancer Drugs by the EMA from 2014 to 16, a cross-sectional analysis. And... We're going to talk about this paper, but we're probably going to go beyond it and talk, I think, more broadly about the regulation of the cancer drug space. So, Hussein, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Vinay. So, I guess where to get started. Um, I guess I want to start before we jump into your paper by asking you, um, you know, I, I followed your work with a lot of admiration over the last few years. Um I think I was lucky enough, I think I wrote the editorial to the paper that Courtney Davis and you uh, collaborated on a few years ago. Um, That's right, two years ago, exactly. Two yeah. years ago, exactly. So I followed your work with tremendous admiration, but I guess I wanted to know, um, you know, what drew you, uh, a policy researcher, uh, towards the cancer drug regulatory space? What made you interested in wanting to study this problem? Right. So, I mean, my main interest is pharmaceutical policy and regulation. So that's where I'm kind of uh, coming from. Uh, the reason why we've been focusing so much on cancer recently is because cancer drugs are now, I think, the single largest category of drug approvals in recent years. And we're seeing a trend in recent years that the products in development are primarily for cancers. When you look at uh, phase one trials, phase two trials, phase three trials, mm -hmm. the trend seems to be upwards mm -hmm. and uh, a growing share of um, products in development are for cancer. So if we want to understand the regulatory landscape of products in general, I think cancer provides a really uh, revealing illustration of, of what's happening uh, in regulation and how regulators are dealing with new products. That I think that's well said. So I, I think you're putting this in very nicely that there is so much drug development in oncology. The majority of approvals are in oncology. Uh, l l why do you think that is? Why is there so much interest in cancer medications? So that's difficult to answer um, because uh, part of it is probably because there's a lot of scientific advancements that are happening. Um, but part of it 
also maybe because of the regulatory expectations of mm -hmm. clinical trials mm -hmm. when products are actually being approved by regulators. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that for oncology products and hematology products, the, um, the evidence threshold seems to be a bit lower than for other products. Um, and regulators seem to justify this based on patient demand, about unmet need, and really the desire, societal desire to have faster access to um, cancer medications, yeah. which then results in you know fewer trials to be done on products and companies being able to get their products onto the marketplace on the basis of very few studies that include few patients and using surrogate endpoints, which is something that you're very familiar with, of course. <laughs> right, something so near and dear. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that um, there's no one can discount the advances in biology, as you put nicely, but uh, probably it's hard to... It's hard to ignore the other two pieces here, which is one, if you bring a cancer drug to market and you have an indication of just a few thousand people for, per year, you can still make a billion dollars. You know, you can make billion dollar drugs from very small niche indications. And the hurdle to get that drug to market is often very, very low. Uncontrolled study of 60 people with a response rate of 20%, you're on the market. So if the reward is so high, the bar for entry is so low, it would be stupid not to throw all your R&D into this field. Would you agree? Um, I think you said it nicely. There's there's a lot of return um, expectation. I mean, it, it, cancer drugs are probably the, I mean, actually not probably, inarguably, they're the most expensive drugs. We, we would see routinely drugs that cost over $100,000 a year mm -hmm. um, that are coming on the market for, for several cancer indications. So when, when you can charge such prices, um, especially in the US um, and less so in Europe, but still quite uh, remarkable prices, then I guess it's a, it makes it an interesting, appealing, compelling area to focus on for, for, for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something that I think is something that we hear a lot about, which is that um, that people who are suffering from cancer are willing to tolerate increased uncertainty. They're willing to tolerate greater risk. Um, and, and what, and they want drugs on market, even with less and less evidence. That's a narrative that I hear, you know, people, people say that narrative. I guess my question is, how do we know that narrative is true? And how do we know it's reflective of what the average cancer person wants rather than the handful of people who are extremely vocal, who go out of their way to appear at drug advisory meetings and that sort of thing? I think you said it really nicely. It's a narrative. Um, as far as I know, there's no real data or evidence that supports that claim. Um, at least in the academic literature, I have not come across any study that actually documents systematically at the population level um, that patients are willing to tolerate greater risk, greater uncertainty, um, and, and really the biggest uncertainty of all, which is whether they're going to be living longer when they take these medications. We don't know if patients are aware of this. And I think there's huge need for doing research in that space to better understand what patients actually understand and what they would want um, with their cancer medications. I think it, it's, it's purely a narrative at the moment. That's well put. Now, let me, let me turn to your current paper. So I had the pleasure of reading this paper just a few days before it came out because one of your collaborators leaked the manuscript to me. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed this paper. I think it's, it's, it's so well done. Um, and, and it is now out in the BMJ and people can read it. Um, and, and I guess um, uh, before we talk about the paper, do you, do you want to give a shout out to your collaborators and, and just let people know uh, what were the groups that you worked with on this? Yeah, this was a very multidisciplinary team of uh, collaborators. It was really a dream team to to work with. So we have Courtney Davis, who's a, a reader 
uh, in uh, sociology at uh, King's College London, which is just across the street from the London School of Economics where I work. I see, across the, um, across the street, I see, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then we have two research assistants, Sochil um, and Nicola from um, London School of Economics and King's College London. We had Bishal Gewali, who mm-hmm. used to be at Harvard at Aaron Kesselheim's group at Portal, um, but midway through, he's moved to Chris Booth's group <laughs> at Queen's University Kingston, That's and right, Chris yeah. is also on the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have really important methodologists who are contributing to the paper, who are the ones who actually developed the risk of bias tool that we're using um, in the paper, which is the Cochrane Risk of Bias Tool 2.0, which is the revised version of the very widely used and popular um, risk of bias tool. So, and, and these are Julian Higgins, Yelena Savovich, and Jonathan Stern. Oh, it, you, it, you put it well. It is the dream team. And and okay, let's jump into the paper. So, um, you know, I, I want you to t- to tell us what you think. You know, the major findings are. But I guess I'll just I'll just give a quick summary, which is that you know you picked a couple of years of of of, of EMA drug approvals, which I think is the classic way in which research is done in this space. And you went through them and you said, how many of these approvals are on the basis of non-randomized studies, uncontrolled studies? How many are on the basis of randomized studies? When you do mm-hmm. a randomized study, we need to draw a very clear distinction between randomized studies that test novel drugs against the best available standards of care or randomized studies that test two doses of a novel drug, those randomized mm-hmm. studies are not actually efficacy studies. Those are kind of dose-finding studies, and I think people are mm-hmm. quick to label them, oh, randomized, they're great, but they really mm-hmm. don't answer meaningful questions. They answer drug development questions. Um, okay, so you looked at that, and then you went through the randomized trials looking at elements of bias. So so take us through, you know, what were the kind of key questions you were an- asking, and what did you find? So you're absolutely right. Um, we're... we're we're trying to kind of extend or move beyond the literature in this space, which tends to uh, focus on um, and report, for instance, that the majority of cancer drugs that come on the market are based on randomized controlled trials, which we know are the gold standard of evaluating clinical efficacy, Mm -hmm. right? And we wanted to move beyond that a little bit and say, well, we know also that uh, even if you have a randomized controlled trial um, of a cancer medication, it can still be conducted in a way that could introduce bias into the results. Mm -hmm. So uh, we wanted to really dig deep into these studies in the way that they're designed, in the way that they're conducted, analyzed, and reported to try to understand whether there are methodological issues that could have gone wrong uh, in the way that these studies were done, which Mm -hmm. is why we're using the Cochrane Risk of Bias Tool 2.0, which is a revised version. And um, we've identified I think the the actual number is 27 drugs out of the 32 that we identified in our cohort, Mm -hmm. which is from 2014 to 2016, had at least one randomized control trial that supported the approval. Mm -hmm. And we go through all of those randomized control trials and essentially ask several signaling questions about the way that the trials are done. Mm -hmm. And according to our answers to those questions, then um, we make some judgments about the risk of bias in those studies. And we find about half of this randomized controlled trials that we, that we identified in this period were at high risk of bias, hmm. which means that their results may have been exaggerated or the results may have appeared more favorable for the cancer drug that's under investigation in those trials. I see. Um, I guess uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is a great point, which is that... Um, 
you know, when you don't have a randomized trial, it's often very difficult to make causal inference with certainty. It's often very difficult to know a new drug is better than the treatments we're currently using in the absence of randomized studies. But simply because you have a randomized trial doesn't mean you have a good randomized trial. Randomized trials can be randomized, but they can be really poorly done. And they're poorly done in many ways. And some of those ways are captured in these, quote, risk of bias tools. So I guess I was wondering if you'll tell us what are the ways that are what are the types of risk of bias that that you see uh, in, in these validated scoring uh, metrics in this Cochrane scoring 2.0 metric? Mm-hmm. What counts so as risk re- of bias? Yeah, right. Uh, the revised tool focuses on five domains um, of risk of bias, and these are risk of bias that can arise from the randomization process itself is the first one, Mm -hmm. which means that the randomization might not have been done correctly, which means that a a truly random process was not used to allocate patients into different groups, for instance, or that the randomization sequence or the allocation sequence was not concealed from the participants. Mm -hmm. So that's domain number one. Domain number two is around deviations from intended interventions, which which is essentially around the protocol that was uh, implemented in a trial and whether we're really deviating quite far from that protocol mm-hmm. and whether deviations are balanced between the two arms of the trial. I see, yeah. Uh, and that could introduce bias into the, into the trial results. So that's domain number two. Domain number three is around incomplete outcome data. It's possible that patients discontinue their treatment or withdraw their consent to continuing the treatment, and we may not have um, all of their outcome data for analysis. And if, again, if we have substantial numbers of patients whose outcome data are not available for analysis, then this may cause concern in the, in the trial. Uh, domain number four is around uh, the measurement of the outcome. So this is around, for instance, if you have a subjective outcome and your assessors are not blinded, Mm -hmm. then that could introduce bias into the way that the outcomes are assessed. Mm -hmm. And the fifth and final domain is around the selection of the reported results, which is if you have three different definitions of response, for instance, in cancer trials, and then you use all three, and then you choose to report the one that looks statistically significant, Mm -hmm. then that would introduce bias, of course. Of course. I see. So I guess I'd say that that is the only category in which all of these randomized trials appear to be scoring well, which is that in the modern world, you must pre-specify your hypothesis and you must report that. So you you agree? Yes. Um, So this is uh, quite consistent with other literature in this area that trialists uh, and journals actually are becoming really good at making sure that the protocol and the outcomes that are pre-specified in the protocol match those that are finally reported in the in the in the paper. Exactly. Now, mm-hmm. let yeah. me let me qualify yeah. that finding that we don't we don't conclude that any trial is at high risk of bias on that domain around selection of the reported results. Fair enough. But we still find quite a few instances of incomplete reporting of the results, which means that in the protocol the researchers may have said they're going to do so-and-so sensitivity analysis around their primary endpoint, mm-hmm. but then we didn't really find uh, the results of those sensitivity analyses. Or they may have said we're going to adjust our analysis according to these variables, but then some of those variables were actually not used in the final specification of the model. So there were instances of incomplete reporting, but we, we thought researchers did report what they promised to report in terms of the primary outcome. Therefore, we thought it would be fair to call those um, at at low risk of bias. I see. Um, 
I, I look at your table, a figure two in your paper, and so many things jump out at me. And let me just let me just say them out loud, and and let's see what you think about it. Uh, one thing that jumps out at me: these are randomized controlled trials that are supporting the efficacy of anti-cancer drugs. Uh, first thing that jumps out at me: what is the primary efficacy endpoint that we're using most often? And obviously, the answer is overall survival. Oh no, no, that's not the answer. Uh, no. um, okay, obviously, the answer is global health-related quality of life for the duration. Oh, for no, 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 that's not the answer it is a composite surrogate endpoint called progression free survival or event free survival or response rate and just a handful actually one two three four five six only six have overall survival as a primary endpoint uh what, what do you think is going on with these primary endpoints well you're not being fair Vinay, because uh, there are a few where overall survival is also a co-primary co-primary so, uh-huh, yes. uh-huh yeah so uh, we we actually counted those uh, in our paper <laughs> and, and and if you sum those up as well then uh, we have about a quarter of the trials uh-huh. uh, that had overall survival either as their primary endpoint or co-primary endpoint uh-huh. and the rest as you said are looking at surrogate measures and what is really interesting uh, or maybe not as surprising to you and to your audience uh, is that the trials uh, that measured overall survival, fewer of those trials were at high risk of bias mm-hmm. compared to the trials that measured other surrogates and points such as progression-free survival and response rate. And the reason for that is overall survival being an objective outcome um, and an outcome that's uh, a lot easier to observe. Um, it's, very, it's, it's largely immune to the methodological issues or deficits that we're identifying mm-hmm. in the in, in our assessments, so that's important to note and emphasize. And and let me try to um, let me let me do my best to try to articulate the deficit, uh, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, when overall survival is the primary endpoint of a study. Uh, as you point out, it is easy to know if someone lived or died. And even if the patient stops coming to my clinic for follow-up visits, I can phone up the family, the closest uh, relative, a loved one, and find out if the patient's alive or dead on a certain date. I can always find that out by telephone. You're absolutely right. But if the primary endpoint of this study is a composite time-to-event imaging-related endpoint, like progression-free survival, if patients in one arm or the other arm of a study are disproportionately no longer coming to my clinic, I will no longer be able to perform radiographic imaging on them, and I will have to censor those patients, and that might be disproportionate one arm versus the other. So PFS is a more volatile endpoint in the sense that people could be lost to follow-up, and I will not know when they progress. And differential Mm -hmm. censoring is one of the things that you're pointing out as a way in which there's deviation from prescribed interventions. Is that fair to say? That is that is absolutely correct, and that's actually um, the the domain of the risk of bias tool related to incomplete outcome data, and that's the most frequently seen issue that we're that we're identifying. And the other one that uh, PFS and response uh, rate is susceptible to is uh, regarding uh, measurement of the outcome, and if the outcome assessors are not blinded, uh-huh. if there is no centralized. Um, uh, assessment of outcomes by a blinded committee and the investigators are aware of which patient is receiving what treatment or if they can actually correctly guess which patient is receiving what treatment, which could happen in cancer trials because of the quite distinct side effect profiles of some of these experimental treatments, um, then you would expect that that information, that knowledge could influence the way that they are 
assessing the outcomes. Yes, uh, I think I think you you put it well. You can you can often tell if a patient's getting sugar pill or say a uh, you know uh, a dirty TKI. They have certain side effects that you don't get from sugar pill. You don't get hand foot syndrome from sugar pill, for instance. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about here was. A couple of years ago, there was a clinical trial called Bolero. It was a randomized controlled trial of women with uh, hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer being randomized to aromatase inhibitor plus or minus a novel drug Everlimus. And one of the things I noticed when I read this study was that there was a lot more censoring if you got the investigational drug than if you got the control arm. And that censoring was differential. It was more in one arm than the other. And the censoring happened a lot in early time intervals after time zero. And uh, so with a colleague at Johns Hopkins uh, named Osama Bilal, we, we pointed out something about the Kaplan-Meier estimate. Kaplan-Meier estimate um, of any endpoint, including PFS, hinges on the assumption that people who are censored are no different than people in whom you have data. They're no healthier, right. wealthier, or wise. But if you have a toxic drug that may lead some people to drop out, that assumption may be wrong. They may be sicker. Sicker people are more likely to be tipped over into feeling really lousy by a toxic, dirty TKI like Everlimus. So we hypothesize that maybe the censoring is actually informative. There's something different about the people being censored. And so we reconstructed Kaplan-Meier curves and we said, um, you know, let's assume that the people who were censored actually were more likely to have the event of interest and mm -hmm. in both arms. And what we found was that under a set of modest assumptions, we could get the curves to cross. In other words, that the PFS difference could be entirely an artifact of whom is censored. And mm -hmm. I guess I would say I was not surprised a couple years later when the overall survival results of that Bolero study found no difference in survival. And people right. say, oh, well, the PFS benefit might have been, quote, lost by subsequent therapy. But the other option is that there was never a PFS benefit. It was just an artifact of poor methods. What do you think? Yes, I think uh, that's that's a big possibility, of course. And uh, we know from your research and from others' research, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Ian Tannock uh, and, and his paper yeah. recently in Lancet Oncology about the fragility of uh, many of these uh, yeah. trial results that even a few events, if they're being miscategorized or if there's any bias in the way that they're assessed, this could tip the results in the opposite direction and statistical significance can simply be lost very easily in many cases. Mm -hmm. So even few events from few patients could easily influence our results. The fragility index, that's a, that's a tough one on Twitter, but I'll, I'll save that for another day. But I want you to ask you a little bit more about, um, about this paper, which I thought is super mm -hmm. interesting. You also have this really nice table in your paper um, where you, and I believe these are from European public reports. You're, you're finding sort of stray reviewer comments and you're saying, hey, did you forget about these comments? And when I looked through these comments, uh, you know, as as a cancer doctor who's prescribed many, many, maybe even uh, maybe all of these medicines, I think perhaps all oh, of these sure. medicines, uh, as somebody who's prescribed almost all of these medicines, I was concerned that I didn't know all of these observed discrepancies you pointed out. Uh, yeah. That doesn't make me feel good. Uh, so where are you finding these these little um these little, I guess, reviewer comments, and where do they come from, and, and what do you think when you look at them all together in Table 1 here? They're very revealing, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, so these are coming from European Public Assessment Reports, which are publicly available documents that pretty much um, summarize the deliberation of the main decision-making committee of the European Medicines Agency, the CHMP. And this committee members um, include um, representatives from all European member states, European Union member states, and they essentially 
comment on different uncertainties or risks that they're identifying or problems with the trial design or the magnitude of the benefit and things of this nature. So what we tried to do in this paper, in our, in our review that was published in the BMJ, we tried to distinguish between things that are focusing on the validity of the trial. So that's captured in our risk of bias assessments. And then we said beyond the validity of the trial, are there other concerns that regulators themselves are identifying that um, will give us another indication about other issues with these with these particular drugs. Mm-hmm. So the types of things that they're highlighting or emphasizing include things like whether the outcomes are appropriate, whether the comparators are appropriate, or whether the magnitude of effect that's observed in the trial is meaningful to influence or inform decision-making in clinical practice. And I think that's the most important one or the one that... Um, should be communicated more widely because that really highlights to me, and again, as a non-clinician, the disagreements, even within experts, about the value of these drugs, the therapeutic value of these drugs. When two experts are not agreeing that the magnitude of effect that we're observing is may or may not be meaningful, that to me says something about um, whether these should be approved or whether we should really have... Um, more transparent reporting about um, the magnitude of effect of these studies. Yeah, I would say more experts would agree that these are game-changer, miracle, revolution drugs if all of the experts took money from the pharmaceutical industry. But unfortunately, we're not at a 100% conflict of interest. Not yet, but we're getting close. We're going to get there someday. And then we will all agree. All miracles. Yeah. So... I thought I was very clever, but like 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 99% of my clever ideas, uh, uh, smarter people had already thought of it. And so apparently, this is something that I missed because I I should I should read even more carefully. But um, but one of the things the authors did here was they have a table called Box One of major concerns raised by European regulators that often say things like, "Oh, this was an unplanned interim analysis. This was you know all these sorts of the magnitude of the treatment effect is not well defined, and further follow up is needed. All these kinds of concerns." And my question was in how many instances could you find this concern in the actual published manuscript? And the answer is you'd look for that. We looked for that and uh, we did not find um, (laughs) any indication that these were mentioned in the papers, actually. And that may be because um, it may have come up in the peer review process, maybe, and didn't make it to the paper or simply because uh, journals are not as interested in these uh, nuances of limitations or discrepancies in interpretation. Um, but whatever the reason, they don't necessarily make it into the scientific literature, and I think that's a concern. Yeah, I think it's a huge concern. I, I, will, I will pile on and add that I think some of the other problems here are the companies that run these studies, when they submit the paper to the journal, they hire consultant medical writer groups, people who are very clever, and they know that some some of these things are deficits. And if you have deficits and you're a medical writer and you're getting paid, you think of every clever way you will bury that or not put it in at all. And you can justify why you, it's not nobody's business, has nothing to do with the paper, so you can omit it. And, uh, I think that uh, that's deeply problematic, that, uh, that if I, I can read the paper and I will not learn this, the only people who are learning this are people with access to the primary data. That is very concerning. 
Yes, yes. And I think there's a huge opportunity here. And, and we have a blog post that we uh, that we published that accompanies the publication of the paper on the BMJ website. And we we are calling for collaboration. We're calling for action on this issue that we want regulators to work with us and with patients and clinicians and the research community to try to find a way where these limitations are actually surfaced and they do make it to patients so that they can understand, they can uh, feel more equipped uh, with this information. Um, this is really a tremendous paper, and um, and uh, and you cover so much here. And I, I, I guess I have one more kind of question for you, and then I'll, I'll leave the floor to, for whatever points you think we we should have covered. But I guess my question for you is, and I'm going to pose this a little bit like a hypothetical because mm. we haven't proven all of this, but let's just say hypothetically this was what was going on. Mm. You know, you're in the London School of Economics. So, I mean, I think I come back to the economics on this. Let's imagine that, you know, you have lots of people who have cancer in a hypothetical world. And in this hypothetical world, there are lots of things you could do for those people with cancer. You could actually send, you could pay someone to go to their house every day and cook them meals and, 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 and clean their bedding and, and help them around the house and drive them to appointments and give them a, a handful of therapies uh, that have uh, some benefit. So that's, that's, those are services you could offer to somebody. Mm-hmm. The other thing you could do in a hypothetical world is you could offer them many, many, many um, small molecule or antibody chemical compounds that have very, very low levels of evidence, many of which, if they were rigorously tested, may not even improve outcomes that anyone cares about. They may merely mm-hmm. affect physiologic surrogates and not improve outcomes. And by doing so, they'll be in good company because the history of medicine is littered with such drugs. In the former world, where you provide a whole bunch of social services to someone who's sick and vulnerable, what you do with capital, with money, is you take money from everyone, from society, and you disperse it to a lot of people who are probably making modest salaries. Um, people, The kinds of people who would go and provide these services are, I think, probably reasonably or perhaps modestly paid. In the other world, where you pay for a lot of unproven chemical molecular compounds at lofty and unsustainable prices, what you do with capital is you take money from everybody and you concentrate it in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And I guess I would say that in in, looking at these two worlds, the second world will always win because the people in whom who you concentrate money with will have the power to say, we should do things that concentrate the money. I don't know. Is this a crazy idea? And does it have any relationship? This hypothetical fairy tale world, I've imagined, does it have anything to do in the real world? You've done so many papers where you guys are pointing out over and over again, evidence base is weak, cost is high, follow up post market is lousy. Um, you're not telling us all the things we need to know. Uh, one worries as if the entire field has been captured. And, and what is the purpose of that capture, but not to consolidate wealth? I don't know. What mm. do you think? Mm. It's a big question, Vinay, and it's it's a difficult one. But um, I think the real world is clearly the second one that you're outlining, which is where we're very much um, giving, in some cases, we're potentially giving false hope to patients and asking them to, in countries like the US, very much bear the cost of these drugs, which can be very substantial. And in other countries like where I'm based in the UK, we're asking health systems to borne these uh, these costs. And th- what that does is exactly as you outlined, it displaces resources away from other areas where we know we can get better value for our investment and for our resources. And we have a system 
um, the National Health Service in the UK, which is doing exactly that. It's it's meant to provide good value for um, for for money, and 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 it's uh, paid for with taxes. Um, and if we're continuing to spend such large sums of money on cancer drugs in the future. What this does is it, it takes resources away from other preventive services and other more um, valuable, cost-effective services that the NHS is very well known for and, and can provide at better value. Hmm. And um, are, is there anything that you know I didn't ask you about in this paper that you think is something important that we should that we should highlight or talk about, or 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 any of your work on this topic, not just this paper? No, I think um, I, I would pose it as a question to you as well, because um, you being an oncologist, um, you would have a much better perspective on this. But one thing that we struggle with, uh, and, and, and by we, I, I, I'm referring to colleagues of mine from health policy or health economics kinds of backgrounds, about uh, the implications of this kind of research for patients. Um, you know, what should be the takeaway for patients? The way that we think about it, or, or at least I think about it, is that, you know, we hope that this research doesn't alarm necessarily patients, but uh, hopefully they use it to be better equipped to be, you know, to, to demand better evidence from regulators and to be better advocates, stronger advocates to ask for more robust research. What do you think about this? What, what's your way of thinking about this? Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question, I think, when we're really fine-tuning the messaging around these types of results. Yeah, I guess I'd say the work you're doing is the antidote to a huge thing, which is on the other side of the issue, the juggernaut of, 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 of media and publications that are promoting these products as, as miraculous, uh, even though they have these sorts of deficits, is, is you know maybe 10 to 100 to 1 probably compared to this kind of, maybe 1,000 to 1, to be honest. Uh, so I think it's really kind of, um, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, really a David and Goliath kind of situation. But your question is, like, what do you actually, at, 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 at the level of the bedside, what does this lead to? And I guess yes. I would say, I think it leads to a few things in my mind, which is um, um, in the last, I will say in the last month, a couple of colleagues and I have discussed cases of, of patients they're taking care of. And they tell me that, oh, I have a patient who, you know, had progressive disease on one line of therapy and they're starting another line of therapy. And sometimes they tell me about the second line of therapy and it includes drugs that I say, why are you giving those drugs? Uh, there is no data to support those drugs. Or sometimes mm. it's to rec it's, it's based on one of these approvals based on very scant data. And I guess, I guess I would say the question is not that they do it. It's how do they discuss it with somebody? Are mm. they go, do they go into the room and they tell the patient, we're going to start you on X. I regrettably feel that the majority of bedside discussions are, okay, we're going to do X now. Uh, any questions about X? Uh, mm -hmm. Very curt, very kind of just let's just keep doing this. I think mm -hmm. the tougher conversation is to actually tell somebody, um, oh, one of the things you might consider is X. Uh, but you might also consider, you know, focusing on quality of life and focusing on all these other things or all these other, maybe you consider some other things. But mm -hmm. here's what you should know about X. X has been shown in a hundred people to have 30% or more tumor reduction in 20% of people of the 100. So of, of 100 people, 20% have 30% or more tumor reduction. Uh, it's never been shown to lengthen life, and we don't know if it improves quality of life. We do know when you give it to 100 people, seven people died 
uh, likely from adverse events from this drug. Um, the drug, of course, is $175,000 per year of therapy. And your first month January copay, because you're Medicare Part D, mm-hmm. might be X amount of money. Um, you know, you should know that about this drug. This drug might actually make it difficult for you to get certain other services, such as hospice care, if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, this drug is by uh, no means a, a miracle. Um, you know, uh, there's 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 very little reports of a uh, of of sort of super long term survivals of this drug. You know, those kinds of things. And then mm-hmm. to say, you know, uh, on the other hand, uh, the drug, you know, it's it it has been shown to have some shrinkage of tumor. Uh, what do you think? You know, and to put it to the patient. But I feel like I, I think this kind of work highlights the importance that, as in as everywhere in the world, when you have uncertainty, the obligation amongst those. Um, practicing in that space is to share that uncertainty with the person whose life is, uh, you know, literally on the line, who has to make the choice and, and to and to really educate and, and, and kind of become a teacher, you know, uh, in the room and, 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 and hopefully let somebody make a choice that's right for them. So I mm-hmm. think that that's the best, you know, you can happen at a bedside level. But I think at a policy yeah. level, y- your paper like yours and your, your prior papers, um, they make they make i think policymakers should really wake up that this is a serious serious issue there is a lot of money at stake and the amount of uncertainty we're tolerating as a society is so so great and and this is not and we i struggle to believe this is a choice that we are making knowingly it's a choice we're being mm-hmm. pushed into Right, right, right. And I think uh, humility <laughs> um, is, is really the lesson to learn from this kind of body of literature. Um, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that. And in terms of, uh, you know, regulatory uh, implications of this work, I think there is this expectation um, or implicit assumption almost that, uh, you know, drugs can come on the market with some uncertainties and this will be resolved once they're yeah. on the market, you know, several years down the line. And now we know, of course, based on uh, your research, our research, and many others' research uh, projects and papers, that this is simply um, not the case. That if a drug comes on the market, that's really the only point at which the regulatory agency has some control over what type of evidence is acceptable for that yes or no, go, no, go decision. And after that, there's really no incentive for companies to to generate better, more valid, more more robust research. So I think we need to really um, uh, encourage, advocate, and, um, you know, push regulatory agencies to consider this this important implication and, and think about how can we get more robust research available when the product is approved or before it's approved and not expected to be generated afterwards. Dr. Najee, this has been a great discussion, great paper, uh, great body of work. Uh, we, we love to have you back uh, for the next paper, um, and, uh, and I think listeners will really enjoy. Um, I'm hoping to put this podcast out today as a bonus episode so people will be able to, to enjoy it uh, right away. So thank you so much for coming on. I know it's getting late in London. I really appreciate that, and um, look forward to uh, meeting you in person when I'm out there next. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? 
tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.